If you have your Bible with you tonight, would you take it out, please, and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, we'll be looking in verses 16 and 17, and uh, that will provide the basis for our lesson tonight. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Eric's giving away my secrets. I like having something spiritual to contemplate through the week, um, just a little something to focus on, to think about, maybe a word or a phrase or an idea, a short passage of scripture, and, and I like chewing on that throughout the week, just focusing on something really small, bite-sized, uh, and trying to look at that thing from every angle. And this week, it was the end of the second letter to the Thessalonians. Paul ends that letter this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, in verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. What a simple thought. God our Father who loved us. Putting that in even more simple terms, God loves us. And maybe you think I'm silly, what an obvious thing to spend your week thinking about, but are there many better things to think about? Many of us learned this truth with a simple children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But even that is deeper maybe than we give it credit for, it's something that is, uh, communicates an idea to children, and yet there's depth to it even for us as adults. The Bible is what reveals the very spirit and mind of God. It is God's mind, His Spirit, His Holy Spirit that is revealing His love for us. What does the whole Scripture reveal from Genesis to Revelation? God loves me. But we're so used to that thought, aren't we? I mean, you've heard that a, a thousand times. Maybe if you're visiting with us, maybe you haven't. Maybe that's not something that is, that is um, a part of your life that you've thought about and seen throughout your life. But whether you have or haven't, take that in for a second. Mull on it a while. Maybe make this what you think about this week. God loves me. And we think about God and who he is and who he claims to be. What would we expect from God? What would we hope to expect from an all-knowing, all-good, all-just, all-powerful, all-present God? If God is who he claims to be, what would we expect his feeling toward us to be? Well, I would say this, if God is who he claims to be, it's incredible even the fact that he knows me, that he knows me perfectly and intimately, that he knows the very hairs on my head. But again, he's all-knowing, he's all-present. What other things might we expect from a God like that? Well, pity, maybe. We might expect it, and God does pity us. And we know that any decent person, when looking down at someone or something less fortunate than themselves, feels pity. And maybe that feels weird to us to say looking down, but isn't that exactly what God must do in order to see us and contemplate us? Because he is so great and we are so small in comparison. And it is a cold-hearted person indeed who doesn't look down at someone more less fortunate than them and feel some sort of pity for their situation. Even if the one being pitied is, is a vile person, even if their situation is their own fault, 
even if maybe we wouldn't like them outside of their suffering, we might feel a pang of pity at where they find themselves, the situation that they're in. But pity is a long, long way from love, isn't it? What about mercy? Sure, God is long-suffering and merciful. Perhaps he's described in those terms more than any other in the Old Testament. And this is what we would expect an all-good being to be, that he would be merciful, that he isn't petty, that he doesn't take wrongs and just uh, store them up, but he's merciful and forgiving toward others. And we've seen people, uh, perhaps we've done it ourselves, and good on you if you have, we've seen people show incredible mercy and forgiveness toward someone who is rightly guilt guilty, who is guilty perhaps even toward them. And we wouldn't expect anything less from a good and gracious God. Spurgeon said of the mercy of God, It is to my mind quite understandable that the good and gracious God should be merciful toward his creatures. But he goes on to say, But it is a far greater thing that he should love them. Love is even greater than, than mercy. And mercy doesn't always include or lead to love for the one to whom mercy is shown. Thinking about something even greater, what about grace or blessings? Maybe, I mean, that's a big step, isn't it, from mercy to grace? Um, and however we might define those things, and we understand that in the New Testament uh, they can be used interchangeably, but if we understand it, mercy being the idea of not getting what you deserve, the punishment you rightly deserve, and then grace and blessings adds blessings that you don't deserve onto that idea of not receiving punishment. And yet even that we can understand because God did create us after all, right? And grace and blessings are found even in that. Even in God creating us, that's by grace. That's a blessing that I exist. And so it would stand to reason that God would continue to bless us in ways that we do not deserve. But love, love is greater than all of these things. And love, in my mind at least, is harder to comprehend that God loves me. And even if we know enough about God to know that God is love, as 1 John 4 tells us twice, that fact of character doesn't fully communicate on its own the degree with which God loves us. Maybe the best known scripture in all the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice just a couple of uh, things to emphasize from this verse. For God so loved the world. It's not just that he loved the world in, in, the, in the lowest sort of sense. God so loved the world. He loved it so much. And that love was manifested, as 1 John 4 that we referred to says, it was manifested in the giving of his son. This is how much he loved the world. And that's not just the world in general. That's each individual person that makes up the world, past and present and future. God so loved Reagan that he gave his only begotten son that, that if Reagan would believe in him, Reagan should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus talks about love and manifestations of love in John chapter 15. If you want to turn over there in your Bible to John chapter 15. In speaking to his apostles on the night uh, on which he was going to be betrayed, he says in John 15 and verse 9, 
As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. God proved his love, Jesus says, in the the greatest form is that giving of yourself. Greater love has no man than this than to lay down one's life. And Jesus says to lay down one's life for, for your friends. But Christ didn't die for us when we were his friends. And you know these passages. These are familiar to you. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For when we... Now notice what he says about us. For when we were still without strength. In due time Christ died for the ungodly. That's we, that's us. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. That's not us. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Comparison to God, that's not us. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were not friends of God. We were without strength, ungodly sinners, the enemies of God. And yet still, God loved us enough to send his son. And Jesus loved us enough to die for us. And we look at that, and that's true. That is true of every single human being that ever has been or ever will be. God loved them to this degree. And you're, you're probably right with me on all that. Um, But I want to suggest something that maybe is a little bit controversial on top of that. Take all that in. Take all that love in. And know that as a Christian, God loves you more than that. As a Christian, God loves you even more than all these passages we've just read. And all the others that talk about God's love for everyone. We can take it a step further. That God loves everyone, sure, But God has a special place in His heart for those who have chosen to enter into a relationship with Him in Jesus Christ. Do you doubt that? There are all sorts of passages that say that very thing. Take, for instance, John 16 and 27. For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. God's love is even greater for those who love and believe in His Son. God loves us as Christians differently because we love and we believe in His Son. He sent His Son for everyone. But what love He has for those who accept His Son and that awesome sacrifice of grace. Um, my dad's this way. Many parents, I think, are this way. There are a couple of friends of mine that I've been friends with for many years that I love that my dad is not personally crazy about, not crazy about these friends. And he even says sometimes, so I say, you know, dad, don't be so hard on them and those sorts of things. He says, oh, I love them. I love them because they love you and you love them. I love them because of that. 
Well, God loves us. He loves us because we love his son. And and my dad obviously loves them because they're people, and God loves all people because he created them, but also because they are the people who love his son. Think about Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, and along these same lines, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Well, isn't every single person from Nero to Paul who might be in Rome, aren't they all loved by God? Yes. But these Christians in Rome, Paul wants them to know that God has a special place in his heart for them. These were the saints who have a special expression of God's love. What about a verse like this? We we use it a lot when it comes to the giving of our means. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, what about a begrudging giver? What about someone who gives just because they have to and their heart isn't in it? Does that mean God doesn't love them? Of course not. Of course God loves them. But he doesn't love them in the same way as the one who gives cheerfully. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 puts it this way. Behold, uh, what comes to your mind when you think of that word? Behold, something great is about to be said. Pay attention. Wake up. This is going to be amazing. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Not just what love God has bestowed on us. Behold what manner of love. What an incredible love that God has shown that we could be called his children. We are in awe of the fact that the creator of the universe loves us, but not just loves us. He loved us enough to send his son to die for us. And if we are obedient to his will, we can be his children. God loves us as Christians differently because we love and believe in his son, but also that very idea that John is talking about there. He loves us differently because we are his children. Even as we read in this passage I've been thinking about all week, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our Father, who loved us. Um, I want you to know, if you're here tonight, I love you. If you're my brethren, I really love you. I love all people. But that love that I feel for you is different than the love I feel for my two daughters. Without hesitation, I would give my life for them. I always have pure motives in what I direct them to do. Uh, Like 99.9% of the time, when I tell them to do something, it's because I believe it is what's best for them. And I don't have, shame on me, but it's true, I don't have that same purity of motives with everybody else. In some ways, I love Stephanie more than I love my daughters, but the the purity and selflessness of the love that we have for our children should give us a glimpse of God's love for us. God loves us because, because we're His children. And you just love your children differently than you love anybody else. And God loves us as Christians differently Um, I thought about exactly how to phrase this, and I struggled with the right way of of putting it. God loves us as Christians differently because we are trying. You know, there's lots of people in this world who, who have no desire to seek God. There are those who claim to know God, and yet they don't do anything at all for God in their lives. 
again, this passage that we just looked at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, God is going to comfort our hearts, but also establish these brethren in every good work and word. They're going to be established in these things, and God loves them because they're seeking to work for him. Um, and one of the rebukes that Paul had given these brethren is because they had stopped working. And Paul says, God wants you to work, and God loves you when you're trying to work for him. And I know, um, this is where the preacher has his caveats, right? I know there's plenty of good teaching that has and needs to be done on not earning our salvation. I've done that teaching. I'm telling you tonight, there's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. That obedience alone isn't enough to save us because we'd have to live perfectly. But don't get the idea that is peddled by so much of this world and so many who profess to be Christians that obedience is not important to God. You know what God loves? He loves when you're obedient. He loves when you're trying to be obedient. And well, we ought to. Because Jesus and Paul and others throughout the Old and New Testaments equate this idea of love for someone with, with being willing to do what it is that they ask you to do. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus says. We do, and so we try. We try our very best to keep his commandments. Um, good works are important too and required by God, and God expects us to give our all in everything we do for him. And that's scary. I understand. I understand the uncomfortableness with this idea because sometimes we do try and we try hard and we fail. I'm trying to do what's right and yet I'm sinful. Yet I fail and fall into sin. I don't do what it is God has called me to do and that can be discouraging. What more am I supposed to do? What more can I do? And sometimes we get so discouraged in our lack of perfect obedience that the devil whispers, well, what's the point? What's the point in trying because you're just going to mess up again anyway? But that's not God's perspective. That's not God's perspective at all. God appreciates and loves when we're trying to do what's right. I think that about the Apostle Paul, and he says, I've done all things in good conscience. Um, Paul was trying. He was trying even when he was persecuting Christians he was trying. And yet still he sinned. And under the old law he knew that he stood condemned because of that. Uh, Romans chapter 7 goes in great lengths to describe um, his anxiety about that. His, his distress about this fact that he's separated from God because he's not keeping the law perfectly. And he says in verse 24 of that chapter, O wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 8 and verse 1 then says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul was trying to follow after the things of the Spirit. And how could there be condemnation? If we have accepted the grace offered in Jesus Christ, the only way that there can be condemnation is if the devil can get us to stop trying, to lose heart, and quit trying to do what God has called us to do. And that's why there are so many admonitions in the Scriptures along this lines. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if, if we do not lose heart. 
looking back to the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 24 and verse 16. For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again, but the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. And so I call you to make the effort to get up and try again. Practice righteousness because that is the standard of Christian faithfulness. Not perfect righteousness, but practicing righteousness. Striving to walk in the light as He is in the light. And that applies to everything in our Christian life. Bible study, prayer, good works, overcoming temptation, influence and evangelism. One day at the time we try. We give our very best while living in the grace of God when we fell short, but always keeping our focus on spiritual things. That's walking according to the Spirit. And God sees that, God notices that, God cares about that, and God loves that. Now don't get me wrong. These three things, God loves us as Christians differently because we love and believe in His Son. Well, do you love and believe in His Son? I mean, that's not a hard question, folks. Do you love and believe in His Son? Are you His child? Have you come and put Christ on in baptism and been adopted into His family? Are you trying to do what is right as best you can? Well, good job. Wow. That's a, you ought to feel really proud of yourself for that. Of course not. This is not an opportunity for pride and self-righteousness and arrogance, but it is an occasion for comfort. I can have confidence in my salvation. I can have comfort even when I fall short because I know God loves me. He loves me because I love and believe in His Son. He loves me because I am His child and He loves me because I am giving everything of my heart, soul, mind, and strength to serve Him and serve Him faithfully. Shouldn't that give us comfort as Christians? That God loves us like this. If you've become a Christian and you're trying to do what's right, don't be discouraged. Bask in the love of God because He pours it out richly. And again, maybe some will say, are you saying that we earn God's love? That you know, God only loves us if we're like this? No. But we can experience more of God's love in faithfulness than we can in unfaithfulness. Everyone receives love from God, but we receive love to a different degree when we are faithful. And we can grow deeper in God's love as we strive and press toward the goal as Christians. And so I want to encourage you, this is my first application, I want you to encourage you to think about this simple thought this week. God loves me. God loves me. So what's the application? Well, because God loves me, um, there's some things that should be true in our lives as Christians. Because God loves me, I should see my self-worth. There are too many Christians who are walking around this world looking for self-worth in all the wrong places. I almost quoted a country song there, didn't I? Looking for God's love, maybe. Looking for love in all the wrong places. And they don't have a sense of self-worth because those things of this world, how smart I am, how pretty I am, what other people think about me, those things can't truly give us that worth. But because God loves me, 
because God loves me, I do have self-worth. Whatever else is happening in my life, I have that worth that is given to me by Him. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, those of you who know me know that this is kind of like my theme verse for my life. This is what I'm trying to live out every single day. This is my mantra, what I repeat to myself. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see how Paul personalizes that to such, uh, to such a degree? He loved me and he gave himself for me. And all of that is in the context of this idea of, of uh, crucifixion. I have been crucified with Christ. In, in, in mind is the idea that Christ was crucified for me, and now I am crucifying myself for him. And do we think about the crucifixion in those terms? That he loved me, and he gave himself for me. Now that should be convicting in one way. You know why Jesus had to go to the cross? It was for the sins of the world. But Jesus also had to go to the cross because he knew in another 2,000 years or so there would be a, a boy that was born that was named Reagan and he would grow up and he would commit sin and he would need forgiveness. And Jesus Christ went to the cross because he loved me, because he loved Reagan. And he gave his life for me because of my sin, yes. And my sins put him there, yes, as we sing sometimes. But he loved me so much that he'd be willing to go to the cross. How do you put it in these terms? If there was no other human being that existed except you, Jesus would still be willing to go to the cross. That would be enough. Because that's how much he loves you. And if, if Jesus loves you that much, and God the Father loves you that much to send him, how can we have anything but worth a great and abundant worth. How much did you cost? The blood of Jesus Christ. That's how much God was willing to pay to redeem you. Because God loves me, I should see my self-worth. And secondly, I should converse often with Him. Love is something that should be expressed. And, and maybe we don't joke about it as much as we once did, but you've all heard the joke as I probably have. You know, I told her I loved her on the day I married her, and if anything changes, I'll let her know. That kind of mentality. But we know that that's not accurate. Love is something that ought to be expressed and expressed often. And God expresses His love over and over and over to us. It's not like back there in Genesis. God says, well, I love you and then I'll let you know if something changes. No, He, he tells us His love over and over and over. Should we not express our love back to God? Should we not converse with Him often? Should we not express our love in worship? Should we not go to Him in prayer? Should we not look for His response in the Scriptures? Um, I, I, I'll admit, sometimes I'm not the best about this in my physical relationships. Not in telling people I love them. I'll tell people I'm, I love them. But in this idea of having this frequent conversing with people that I love, I, I'll admit sometimes I've hurt my mama's feelings when I go too long without calling her. And some of you call your mama every single day. That's, I'm amazed by that. I'll be honest. I'm amazed by that. That's awesome that you do that. And you do that because you love her. And you want her to know that. And it hurts God 
when we don't desire to have conversation with Him, when we don't desire to converse with Him or commune with Him. And so I admonish you, if you love God and you know God loves you, go to Him in prayer. God wants to listen. He wants to listen to all the things you have to say. Think about your children. How how much would you give for your children to just tell you all the things that they're thinking, all the things that they've done at school and all those sorts of things? Well, maybe at a certain age they did that, and maybe it's a little annoying, but then as they get older, you wish more and more for that conversation, for that communion, for conversing with one another, and God desires that from you as well, and God wants to respond in kind. He wants to tell you things as well, and so read His Word, and reading His Word is not just about conversing with Him as well, uh, alone. But because God loves me, I should trust His direction. If God tells me to do something in His Word, that is coming from a place of love. And not just love, a a place of perfect love. Some people tell us what they think we should do, but their motives are selfish. They're telling us to do what, what they say, this is the thing you need to do in this situation. They're doing that because it benefits them in some way for us to do that. And uh, how does that feel? doesn't feel good. We question that person's love, right? They're telling us to do what is best for them, not as what, what's best for us. And even if somebody's motives are pure in the directions that they give us, sometimes they don't always give us the correct direction. Again, I think about my children. I always tell my children to do the things that I think are best for them. But I've been wrong about that like twice, three times. I've been wrong about that, and you've been wrong about that too. Sometimes I do get it wrong. My motivations are pure, but my direction isn't perfect. And yet God, His motivations are perfect, always. 100% of the time, it is what's best for us. And His direction too is perfect. So shouldn't we simply trust and obey, even if we don't see, even if we don't understand? Because we know, remember, God loves me. And He is directing me in the way that is best. And so I should trust His direction in this. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 24 is a a verse that we go over with our girls and we want them to know and follow that God statutes His commands. And this is talking about the law of Moses, not even the law of Christ. But those things are for our good always. And we must remember that with our God. Because He loves us, the things He tells us are always what is best for us. And then finally, because God loves me, number four, I should find comfort in His care. That's really, that's really the point in context of that passage from 2 Thessalonians, isn't it? What is it talking about when it says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Uh, there were some brethren in Thessalonica who didn't have comfort. And it was, it was struggling with this idea of, of what's happening with my loved ones who've passed on. Christ hasn't come again. I'm not certain about, about uh, where they are and if they're right with God or in the hands of God. What's happened to these folks who have died? And, and what Paul says is God has given you comfort before. He gave you comfort when you came to Him. 
And now I pray that He would give you comfort again. God knows and does what is best for me. Not what He thinks or hopes is best, but what is always best. And there is comfort. Comfort to be found in Him. Have faith, dear brothers and sisters. God cares and God comforts. And maybe, in my mind, the best expression of this is found in Romans chapter 8. So turn over there. It's one last passage. Romans chapter 8. And then the lesson is yours. To do with as you will, to meditate on, to think about God loves me. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. What a good summation. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father loved us. And that is seen most clearly in the sacrifice of Christ. If God sacrificed Christ for us, hasn't He proven His love? Hasn't He proven it to the degree that He'll freely give us all things that are good for us. And so if we drop down to verse 38, for I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But that love that is described here That love only comes from entering into a right relationship with Christ. The kind of love that we cannot be separated from. Repent, confess, and put Christ on in baptism. Become His child. And if you do, you can have eternal comfort and good hope through grace. God loves you, whoever you are. Jesus loves you. But what He desires in His love is for you to become His child. Won't you do that even tonight while together we stand and while we sing? Have I not